hi there, you groovy cats. This is your daddy-o coming straight here with a new stack of plates. I think that's what they called them in the 50s. I didn't do enough research, to be honest. Uh, this is Pop Should Never Save Us. This is an unexpected turn. Uh, my name's James Murphy, and I'm joined by... Holly Boson, um, time-travelling assistant, scarf wrangler. Yeah, so we have fired up the randomizer in our time machine. I rolled a bunch of dice. We're going to go through the charts at a number of randomly generated dates, starting from way back at the dawn of pop music when dinosaurs roamed the earth. We're going to be starting off in the prehistory of the 1950s and then visiting a random date in every decade following through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties or aughts, and finishing up in a random date in the 2010s which was a time that was basically exactly like today, except people still thought the damn Daniel meme was funny. <laughs> Here we are then. So today's randomizer has brought us nice and safely towards the top 30 of the 27th of February to the 6th of March, 1959. A good 30 years prior to my being born and a good, you know, 75 years before Holly will be born, her being, of course, the time-travelling companion. Yes. At this point, um, instead of a top 40, it's a top 30. That's how prehistoric this is. We are at the end of February 1959. One thing that needs to be put into context here is that the 3rd of February 1959 was the day the music died. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Valens, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Big Bopper. The you know, it's immortalised Don McLean's song, American Pie. But February made me shiver With every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep um, You'd expect and hope to have seen a little bit more rock and roll on this chart actually I think the music was feeling pretty darn terminal before that plane crash even happened something touched me deep inside the day the music died so 1959 sees Britain in a kind of musical crisis um, you have on the one side, there is still some genuine rock and roll still hanging on, but it's mostly lost its shock value. You also have a lot of traditional pop, or I suppose nowadays we would consider this prestige pop, which is pop that is based on quality songwriting aimed at adult listeners. A lot of it was standard songs that people would have already heard. 1950s was also a time when the single was completely the dominant form and nobody cared about albums. So when a song was popular, you would have multiple artists rushing to cover it in their own style. And one of the differences between the American and British charts, actually, is that in America, the purchasing power was driven by teenagers because they were enjoying an economic boom and teenagers had a lot of disposable income that they hadn't previously had in other generations. In Britain, we're only five years out from the end of rationing. Kids are broke 
And so the stuff that is aimed at adults is actually a much more dominant force. And that shows absolutely the difference between those two nations. You know, you had uh, the waning days of the Eisenhower era in America. Kennedy would shortly come in, bringing this whole new wave of youth and a Camelot-esque myth. Whereas in the UK, we were only four years away from Churchill still having been the Prime Minister. It's definitely moving in black and white in these days. I was struck by just how twee uh-huh. a lot of this remarkable sounding music actually was. There's not a lot of sense of playfulness or fun up and down these charts. It's all very prestige, as you say. And also, like another thing that makes this time incredibly difficult to understand is the fact that a lot of the sounds, the sonic palette, the overall aesthetic is stuff that just straight up does not exist in modern pop music. These are all the dinosaurs that got swept away by the meteorite of the British invasion. Occasionally, you will catch something that does remind you of something you have heard. We'll get to it a little bit, but I was struck by how much the opening of Problems by the Everly Brothers reminded me of David Bowie. It's almost as if they've been severed of context. Music Hall is still a very strong influence on the charts. Music Hall is generally the genre that you look to when there's something in music that you know, but you only know it from old cartoons. You ever want to know why it is that we represent the Far East with a little melody that goes... Well, the Victorians invented that. And they invented that for Music Hall. But what you have to keep in mind is that in the 1950s, Victorians were still alive. There were people who were born in the Victorian era who were just old people. It is an incredible thing to think of, isn't it? I'm always more surprised by facts like that than I should be. Um, The fact that if you were born in 1890, in 1959, you were 69 years old. Of course, that's mathematically obvious, but culturally and historically, it's unfeasible. I think about something that Douglas Adams said in one of his introductions to P.G. Woodhouse story, when he was born in a time when the sun never set on the British Empire and died after the Beatles had broken up for a single lifetime to contain that much of a change in culture. It's so hard to process. Lauren Bacall's first acting job was in The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart, and her last acting job was on Family Guy. Actually, I'm being unfair. These sounds do exist in modern pop a little bit, but they're only brought out for special occasions, by which I specifically mean Christmas. Hang a shining star upon the highest bar. And there's also its influence on 1970s and punk adjacent music. In the 1970s, the 50s were cool for the same reason that in the 2020s, the early 2000s were cool. The 20 years is just the time period that it takes for something to become interesting and cool again. But it's almost as if the charts in 1959 know that they're an evolutionary dead end. Rock and roll has come to the end of its original wave of life. And the intelligent people and the people with the money 
are going, well, that fad is all over. Let's move on to what the next thing is going to be, trad jazz. It's trad, Dad. They're absolutely correct, yeah, and it's going to come storming in. <laughs> Pull back to our original episode, <laughs> wow. Um, it's, yeah, it's such a forgotten part of British music, the likes of Acker Built. Even this little artistic moment is not really thought about anymore. I mean, I think the most significant work of art set in this time period is Absolute Beginners. Yes. The book and movie which is set in 1960, just a little bit after this. That's, of course, written by the same guy who did uh, City of Spades and other kind of mod-based stories. Huge influence on the likes of Paul Weller, and certainly David Bowie did a song I think was written for the film, which is quite a good one as well. One of his best. Um, Yes, and directed by Julian Temple, I believe, is absolutely ridiculous. It's, it is a fantastic film. It's very 80s. Things happen in that movie that could only exist at this specific moment. Like the only real rock and roller in the movie is a child who is being groomed as a teen idol. And there's a sort of factionalism in the movie between the trads who like jazz and the mods who like jazz. So yeah, it is definitely a transitional time and it's often where you can start to see the shape of things to come that things get very interesting with uh, the old world dying and the new world struggling to be born. And that's what we've got here. So uh, if you're ready to go into it, I am. Yeah, let's go into it. Do you want to start from the bottom or the top? Let's start at the number one spot with As I Love You. Each one warmer than the one before. As I love you. Yes. So Shirley Bassey, very modernly, um, very Drakeishly, actually has two songs in the top <laughs> five this week. So I'm assuming she must have really captured the public imagination. Definitely, yeah. And both songs are really good. They're not something that I would necessarily throw on to have a party with or anything like that. But what I really appreciated in both of them was the luxuriousness of the production and arrangements for both. They're never dull, uh. either of these songs. Um, and the one that's at number one, As I Love You, I think it's just got a wonderful mood. It does achieve what a lot of the rest of this chart is kind of failing at doing, which is a kind of sophisticated, grown-up love song. Yeah, there's a place where she puts the rhyme on this. All I could pray for, you are all I could wake up each day for you know that's not putting the rhyme at the end of the line that's putting it just before which gives this um impression of a more complex wordplay In 
hip-hop music, multisyllabic rhyming is there to show off like the sort of like bratty intelligence of the person who's doing it. It's um it's an ego thing and it's very macho. But here it's very soft and feminine. It's like giving space for the rhyme to exist and showing off how much craft went into the composition of this. A very prestige pop kind of feel. That's a word that definitely sings about what this song is. There's so much craft that's done here. There's so much collaboration. You've got a full orchestra backing this person. And I don't think that Bassie, as much as she is a huge voice, is interested in being the diva, as we'd understand it, maybe even as a previous generation may have done. One of the things with Shirley Bassey, and um, this is something that sort of became more apparent as her career progressed, is that her voice is not a particularly precision instrument. She's She mostly tries to keep it under control here. But really what was special about her, and the reason why everyone was fascinated with her, is because of the power of her voice. Yes. You can imagine just how loudly her voice would have come crackling out of those record players that they had at the time, the little dance sets and portable ones, which were known for having very poor sound quality. And speaking of the technology, we're not that far removed from being pre-amplification. I think about the fact that in the early 40s, Sinatra had to work very hard indeed to get what we would now consider a decent PA. Uh, Big Crosby, of course, being the first person to actually croon into a microphone as opposed to just hollering away loudly, hoping to make some sort of indentation on the record or to fill a small hall. I imagine Bassie refined her voice and learned how to sing in places that didn't yet have a microphone. And that gets you this additional power, this additional drive that really does define this song. Yes, um, she, of course, started out um, doing stage musicals at a time before performers would have had what they would have now, which would be a radio microphone. Yes, there's no Britney-esque line that goes from Shirley's ear to her mouth here. We wouldn't be expecting that. Um, uh, So, yeah, I mean, is it a song that works for you? Is it something that you feel like you'd be playing again in the future? Or is it uh, just an interesting kind of curio? I don't personally think I'm going to go back to this song. I think it's um I think it is fine in terms of the historical context. Um but it's not something that I find particularly interesting right now. Um give me her Bond themes though. Goldfinger is massive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That her version and also Anthony Newley's version of Goldfinger. I love them both. Such a cold finger. his web of sin but don't go in yeah i mean one one of the things i really like about goldfinger is that it's sung from the perspective of a woman looking after another woman there's a kind of a sisterly element to it it reimagines a lot of the awful sexism that happens in that film as just a bit of camp fun which allows me as a woman to like watch it and feel like I can be included yeah no those Bond 
themes. They're very important to the overall feel and just that sense of fun that you get in all throughout the 60s and 70s before they decided that this was a very serious job about a magic man who has sex with whoever he wants. There's one other thing about As I Love You which I thought was interesting, which is that it was actually recorded for a rock exploitation movie. Which it was a movie about a record company that um, was basically designed to just have as many rock stars of the day participating in it. Which just goes to show that there wasn't really that huge a gulf between this type of music and um, rock and roll as perhaps there may sound now. People in the modern day are listening to both Louis Capaldi and um, Central C, even though the art is of completely opposing aesthetics. It doesn't actually mean that they're not both um, popular with younger people. Absolutely, yeah. And that's something that gets really overlooked when you do look at like a period piece or something. Um, the fact that these cultures, these drives in what people were buying and the way they express themselves just continually sat side by side all the time. It reminds me of the fact that whenever you see a film that's set in 1987, all of the music is dead on in 1987, when of course people would have still been listening to stuff from the 40s and the 50s. The radio would have been filled with 70s tracks too. Yeah, I mean, children like listening to music for grown-ups because it makes them feel grown-up. They like listening to older music because it makes them feel... Um, like they're, they're in on a secret that maybe their friends aren't. This has always been a feature of how kids listen to music, and so it makes sense to put Shirley Bassey in the exploitation movie. But at the same time, this particular movie that it was written for no longer exists. Um, it is lost media. Wow. We're getting quite late in the day for lost media in 1959. Um, I know, of course, that... The BBC would just delete videotape after videotape and replace it with ballets that nobody cares about. But I am surprised to hear of a film from 1959 that is just gone. That's, uh, yeah, slip with a shock there. Do we know what happened to it? Is it just that it went out of copyright and no one looked after it or what? I, I don't actually know. There are some bootleg recordings of it, but there's no official reels of this thing. It's just gone. Yeah, it occurs to me that as late as 1972, there was a danger of losing the Wicker Man underneath a particular stretch of motorway. What was that about? Um, It was just seen as being outré. It didn't feel like it was the making of any money. So uh, the film company, you know, thought we'll just bury this and not let it come back. Fortunately, it was restored and is in the decent condition that we see it today. But it's an earlier example of the arrogance of thinking that all the things that we love and have become emotionally attached to will last forever. Um, when it was all just physical media, it could make some sort of sense that perhaps all the celluloid was set on fire. Um, but now I think that we have a lot of media that just never gets recorded, never goes on the internet, and then may as well not exist when the corporation who owns it chooses not to share it with the public. So, uh, yeah, if it can happen to Shirley Bassett, it can happen to you. That's a good idea. I'm going to start downloading YouTube videos that matters to me now and uh, printing them out on paper so I will never lose them. That's right, yeah. Just wallpaper your walls with uh, the young boy who said, I can't believe you just did that after having it slapped in the face. <laughs> At number two on the charts, we have the platters and smoke gets in your eyes. Said someday you'll find all who love are blind. Oh, when your heart's on fire, you 
this is a very nice recording. Um, I think that it's going into the same area as the Shirley Bassey opener for the show. Um, I think that it's still trying to have that sense of romance, but there's just something cooler about this. It feels like it's next door to rhythm and blues, even though it does follow the ballad kind of form. Yeah, so the platters, I'm going to say the platters started out as a doo-wop group. And as we talked about when we were discussing Megan Trainer earlier, doo-wop was actually a little bit closer to hip-hop than we could probably imagine it as now. Um, it was a rough street-level music that was considered to be very edgy and teenage. However, saying the platters started out as anything is rather difficult to talk about because they completely changed their entire lineup multiple times before they even had a hit. They were a real Odysseus's ship scenario because at this time, do what vocal groups had kind of a very complicated um, guest list where people would drift out of one and end up in another one. The whole story is incredibly convoluted. And if you want to know more about it, I would strongly recommend listening to Andrew Hickey's podcast, A History of Rock and Roll in 500 Songs. He did an episode about the Platters' Only You, in which he goes into both the recasting of the band and the incredibly convoluted legal battles that resulted when there were about 15 or 20 people who could all claim to have been one of the members of this five-person vocal group. So by this time, the Platters had found their definitive lineup, which involved Tony Williams as the lead singer. Tony Williams was being floated by his manager, Buck Ram, as being a potential solo artist. And when you listen to this, it's really easy to hear why. Some of the stuff he does with his voice is tremendous. Every time I listen to it, I notice something new about his performance. It's almost unearthly. Listen to how cleanly he goes from his chest register to his belt register when he sings Tears I Cannot Hide. He's, you can hear him switching to using a different part of his anatomy. It's beautiful. Tears I cannot hide every single time and then on the last repetition of it at the end of the song you hear his voice almost squeak every time it puts hair on the back of my neck it's beautiful and you still get a little bit of that doo-wop in the background but this isn't intended to be a doo-wop record the platters by this point had decided that they were going to go into recording music for adults, which led to them recording standards, which Smoke Gets In Your Eyes is. It was actually written in 1933. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of those standards would have come from either Tim Pernelli or um, a stage musical and just... As it was in this case. Indeed. Um, and yeah, you can see how the sheet music from those things throughout the 30s would have just spread those all over places before the record player became in common use. And you can see how also that would make this seem like a more growing up music, harkening back to the days that it came from, a classic, a golden oldie in 1959. And I think one thing I really like about this song is the, the wordplay that's used as the central image of it. The basic idea of the song 
is that the singer is sad because they were certain about the love that they were in. Now the relationship is gone and all their friends are laughing at them. But the image that is come back to is when your heart is aflame, smoke gets in your eyes and you can't see them for who they really are, which is quite funny. That's quite a clever little image. But the lyrics are kind of ambiguous because when they say my love, it's not really clear if the singer is talking about a person or whether they're talking about their own emotions. If maybe they just woke up and they realised they were never actually in love with this person. Oh, that's an interesting take. I had taken it as just a surface reader there. But yeah, that makes it a more interesting and a more textured song, doesn't it? That approach. Yeah. So anyway, the reason why Tony Williams never actually had his solo career is that all four male members um, of the Platters got arrested for what was spun up as prostitution charges, but was actually for sleeping with white women. I see. Eventually the charges were thrown out, but the legal battles meant that Tony Williams wasn't able to become a solo artist until the 1960s, by which time Beat had made everything he was doing redundant. God, what an absolute waste. Yeah. There's so much talent and passion and purity within this recording. Um, Someone who had not had their hand tied behind their back by a racist system and apartheid system could have achieved so much. Yeah, it's um, it's sickening, really. And again, this is very much in the lifetimes of, if not our parents and our grandparents, and they aren't that old yet, you know? Yeah, exactly. This was the year that my oldest uncle was born. Yeah, and it's funny, not funny, it's peculiar that there's these sounds which to our ears sound so textured, so cultivated, very easily mimic this record and have it sound exactly the way it does and release it to the charts if it was put as a prestige pop. And yet it comes from another world entirely, albeit one that is creeping back up on us. Yeah. Which is depressing. (laughs) Yeah, um... Do you want to move on and talk about Lonnie Donegan? Very much so. Yeah, I want to dig myself out of this little misery pit that I've dug. Um, and who better to help me do that than Lonnie Donegan? This is Lonnie Donegan with Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavour? If only I could know The answer to my question Is it yes or is it no? Does your chewing gum lose its flavour On the bedpost overnight? If your mother says don't chew it, do you swallow it in spite? Can you catch it on your tonsils when you heave it left and right? Does your chewing gum lose its flavour on the bedpost overnight? Lonnie Dodger. Um, another name that I think doesn't get spoken about very much. In fact, Stiffle as a whole has been kind of buried, hasn't it? I don't think that it's uh, anywhere near as huge a part of the British vocabulary of the musical heritage as it probably should be, considering that nearly all of the 60s bands that became so iconic started out with Stiffle, and a lot of the rock stars still touring today in their 80s as near billionaires first wanted to be Lonnie Donegan with a washboard and a banjo. I think that there's an immortal sense of fun to the way that Lonnie Donegan presented himself and conducted himself. And there's a lot of life in this record. I was very, very positive on it indeed. 
I assume there's some sort of filthy double entendre in this song, but I simply can't unwrap it, and I like that about it. Lonnie Donegan. Okay, so let's imagine ourselves as some sort of time-travelling assassins, or... um, a, like a Doctor Who villain, mm-hmm. like maybe a um, maybe a Dalek from one of those really wacky 1960s stories. And we have to go back and kill someone and make British music awful forever. Lonnie Donegan is absolutely the person you kill. Um, he, he has such a ridiculous influence <laughs> that it's almost difficult to describe. And in fact, part of the reason he's been kind of airbrushed out of our cultural history is because he's been turned into a footnote for some little band from Liverpool. It's been a hard day. Or somewhere like that, I believe. I don't know where they were from. Um, but yeah, I I think that this rattles into... 1960s music and there's parts of it that reminds me of the best kinks records even um it's got that well-worn acoustic lived inness that's just not present yet on the charts you know one two it's not trying to be sophisticated it's trying to be raucous its aim is to show you a good time and get your feet tapping and if you'll forgive me that's quite punk rock of it Yeah, well, it's often said by um, people who think they're clever that Lonnie Donegan's Cumberland Gap is the first punk rock number one. So Lonnie Donegan was actually a trad jazz dork. He had a little thing that he would do in between sets of his trad jazz band. Oh, Actually, I probably need to talk about what trad jazz actually was. So trad jazz was a retro style based on reviving 1920s and 30s black American music from New Orleans and so on. And um, as part of this act, Lonnie Donegan would go on and do a, what he called a skiffle set, which involved him and a couple of his mates playing obviously homemade instruments like not with going beyond the cigar box guitar we're talking washboards um broom handle basses um and would um perform these lively um songs which at first were cover versions of old blues standards then it turned out that his little comedy breaks were actually way more popular than the actual music they were supposed to be playing and he became a pretty major star. He was particularly popular with the youth and he was also a very sincere folky. And one of his ideas was that he felt that folk music was a tradition that had been taken from people in England. He wanted to make folk music into something that anybody could do. If you can imagine what it must have been like in the 1950s hearing a chart full of all this very prestige pot with huge orchestras, all of whom know how to play their instruments, and singers where the focus is on their vocal technique, and lyrics where the focus is on these clever uh, multi-syllabic rhymes. How much fun it would have seen to see this really funny, full-of-energy guy just twanging a rubber band and singing a funny song. The only real problem with Lonnie Donegan, and the thing that prevents him from actually representing the future, is that he also has this incredibly deep um, basis in music hall. And in fact, 
a couple of years after this, he would sell out <laughs> by putting out straight music hall records, which his teenage fans hated. <laughs> Stifle died the day that Donington went music hall. Yes. My old man's at Dustman was received as a massive betrayal. Judas. Oh, my old man's a Dustman. He wears a Dustman's hat. He wears gold blimey trousers and he lives in the council flat. He looks a proper nana in his great big gobnail boots. He's got such a job to pull them up, but he calls them Daisy Roots. <laughs> but the thing is, he always was kind of music hall, as you can hear from this song. Um, it's based on an old vaudeville routine that dates back to the 1910s. This basic joke of you're in a really profound situation. There's a tense question that is being asked. And then the other question that is asked is just this rather gross, silly question. <laughs> and the joke never quite works, but that actually makes it funnier in a weird way. It has the feeling of like that very weird kind of nerd humour. Yeah. That it almost like Python, which would come along about a decade after this, you know? Yeah, and of course this is a time when the goons are on the radio still. Uh, influencing all those young pythons as they, you know, lie in their boarding stools with the covers over their heads, listening to Spike Milligan. And there is something of the hilarious British eccentric to Donagan's performance. There's Milligan, there's Edward Lear, and it would go down to the likes of Beyond the Fringe. I think it does have, music hall in general, quite a cherished place in British humour. To this day, you can still get a laugh out of some of those very, very corny, very old lines. And likewise, there's music hall that permeates all through the charts as they exist as well. Um, a lot of the psychedelica that we would get in the late 60s had one foot or half a toe in the music hall tradition I as well. It was what yes. they were growing up hearing and they reverted to a childlike place, usually through the usage of LSD. A lot of those artists did continue to have that and pump it through, and then it would come back up with the lights of Blur, who were then taken from the 60s. Who's that cut lord marching? You should cut down on your pork life, mate. Get some exercise. So obviously we talked about Donegan's most famous students, the Beatles. They really incorporated the music hall aspects of Donegan's performance rather than just the DIY aesthetic. I could be handy mending a fuse when your lights have gone. You can knit a sweater by the fireside. Sunday mornings go for a ride. You have to keep in mind, a lot of Britain was literally not rebuilt after the war. Britain got bombed very heavily and major towns were just rubble still. Kids, not only did they not have enough money to buy guitars, they were living still in the scars of this war. And the whole time there was also the Cold War beginning and the nuclear threat. So there's this sense of post-apocalyptic elements to this music as well. This idea of um, even after you nuke us, we will still be able to have fun and make each other laugh with what we find in the rubble that I find really very radical. 100%, yeah. You know, a lot of these guys would have been uh, what we now would call beatniks and maybe even at the time that would have be been the way that they saw one another. Uh, dope smoking, inside joke at the back of the bus between the saxophones. 
um, it would have looked to proletariat African-Americans as a kind of guiding force in their lives, um, which isn't to undersell what they themselves brought to it. Um, they There's a very Britishness to trad jazz, even as there's an idealisation of the likes of Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five and uh, Charlie Christian and people like that. Um, but what happens is by melding those things together and being very switched on to the world, you know, a lot of these trad jazzers would be absolutely brilliant posters today. They would uh, <laughs> they would kill on left Twitter. They really would. Uh, Can you imagine how how Lonnie Donegan would have gone off on TikTok playing these gimmicky instruments? At one point, one scenario in the song involves him visiting the president, which again is like this idea of this American idolization that was going on in Britain at the time. America seemed like a place where people could like own objects and like, <laughs> were like close to power. So of course he, it's an American president that he imagines in his song and he puts on sort of a funny version of an American accent to do it. And then the question asked by the representative of the people is... If tin whistles are made of tin, what do they make foghorns out of? Exactly. And that's a perfectly serviceable joke. You know, <laughs> there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but yeah, if that wasn't mental enough, then you get to the final passage of the song in which Lonnie Donegan starts rapping. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I'd take that. Boomers leaving messages underneath Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues. In fact, Lonnie Donegan was the first ever rapper. <laughs> well, again, obviously rap had actually goes back really, really far and it has its roots in the in 1930s talking gospel as well as in country music. Um, but it is striking just how much his flow sounds like Run DMC or something. <laughs> you're not quite in the pocket, Lonnie, but you're getting there. You're doing well. Speaking of hip hop, um, it's worth pointing out that compared to all of the prestige pop that was doing the rounds, which focused on having cleverly written rhymes, Lonnie Donegan still has the best rhymes, you know? Um, the altar. Gibraltar. Three syllables. That's good. I mean, Lonnie Donegan's influence is a terrific. Bruce Springsteen, of all people, said he was a fan. And one of the weirdest pockets of influence that Lonnie Donegan has had is that his music ended up being picked up by Dr. Demento in his radio show. Uh -huh. So Dr. Demento and the Funny Music Project ended up picking up on this and it therefore got played to loads of American college-educated nerds who would go on to write for The Simpsons, who would go on to join something awful and become like that generation of internet comedians. Without Lonnie Donegan, it isn't just a timeline where you never get the British invasion. It's also a timeline where you never get Neil Cicerega. At the same time, it's also just like so utterly historical. It's hearkening back. I mean, he's a self-consciously retro record, uh, a British man's idealised version of 1930s blues by way of 1890s music hall. 
Of course, what happened is he gets swept off the charts pretty much as soon as the kids who he had inspired go on the charts. Like, as, as soon as the wave of Merseybeat happens, Lonnie Donegan is just consigned to the dustbin with his broken washboard. Yeah, absolutely. He's um, in some respects like Bill Haley in that way, in that he was prefiguring what was just around the corner and was immediately brushed aside by an uninterested, hungry populace. Um, but fortunately, it didn't have quite so dark an end as Bill Haley suffered through. Um, I believe he stayed healthy and well and played many a folk festival well into the early 90s. Yeah. And um, can we all just agree that like um, Lonnie Donegan is like one of the greatest white appropriators of black music of all time? Like he's got to be up there with Elvis, right? The thing that I admire about him is that in no way is he doing the embarrassing Mick Jagger thing of trying to sound like his caricature of a black man. You better come on my kitchen. He's singing in his own accent, which is yes. one of the things that adds a bit of power to this, that adds a bit of personalisation to this. Um, it adds personality in a way that just playing these old sounds could have very easily been missed. And it's new, you know, it's gonna take us into the likes of Joe Brown in early rock and roll to be seen in a working class Nine, two, English actor. I wish I knew the reason why me teeth were in my mouth. Why is it when I face the north meals are pointing south? I wish I knew why I get wet when I lay in the bath. I'm just a kind of mixed up crazy kind of kid. Um, it took until about the 1980s before you would get TV presenters that had regional British accents. We got uh, Lord Reith, the original controller of the BBC, to uh, thank for that, because it was the understanding that we won't just have one accent that might annoy someone from over there or from over there. We'll create an entirely new way of speaking and to pronounce each individual letter to be clearly understood, uh, the pronunciation which was received, easily received and understood. And that went on to define the upper classes' view of how to speak. And certainly the middle classes would try and speak that way in an emulation of what they thought the aristocrats sounded like. Um, and it was certainly ruined many a generation of Shakespearean actor, taking it from its Midlands base and losing a lot of the rhyme and the poetry. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to many... So, yeah, the uh, the destruction of regional accents is one of the BBC's greatest crimes, and they've got a few. I totally understand why 13-year-old Beatles thought this was the funniest thing ever, even if not all the jokes work for me. Totally. Humour ages very, very quickly. You know, there's parts of Canterbury Tales, which is extremely funny, and there's parts of Shakespeare, it's like, you, you unfunny jerk. Um, but yeah, there's enough of this that still works really well. Um, that you can hear why it's funny, even if you're not laughing out loud. And yeah, I think if it was the fifties and I'd had the lights of uh, trad jazz surrounding me, and I heard this, I would start tearing up the uh, seats that I was sitting on, like people did with the beginning of the Bill Haley movie, Rock Around the Clock. What musical instrument would you have played if you were in a skiffle band? Oh, I'd want to have to have made something entirely new. So maybe some sort of um, large percussion that had been made out of an old radiator, flying lizard style. 
I'm definitely just going to go with my classic um, rubber brand broomstick bass, I think. Nice. Yeah, you can hold down the rhythm quite well with the likes of that. All right, then. Shall we move on to our next song? Uh, is it Elvis next? So this is Elvis's first appearance on the uh, program. I am, just for some background, a huge Elvis obsessive. And I don't particularly like either of this double A side. This is One Night, uh, backed with I Got Stung. One night with you Is what I It started in my eyes, crept up to my head, polluted my heart. While I was stung, did I run? I got stung. Now, one thing that we may have to explain to our listeners because they're all 11 years old is that back in the day when music was stored on physical objects, a single would have an A side, which was literally one side of the single, and there would be a B side, which would be some nonsense that they would put on the back. Um, there's a few songs that infamously had a B-side that was way more popular than the A-side, um, such as um, something like Carl Douglas's Kung Fu Fighting. Kung Fu Fighting. <laughs> However, a few artists, generally people who were megastars, much like Elvis was, would put out double A-sides where both sides of the record were considered to be the single that was charting. So we're going to have to talk about two Elvis songs here, uh, but he's one record. This is it. And of course, it's an immediately boldlerized record. One Night With You, the inferior step down from the demo, which was so alive in the recording uh, before RCA got involved in this and said it was impossible to release. The original lines were One Night Of Sin. One Night Of It had a much rawer sound. It was a lot more rambunctious sounding. And they hadn't had the uh, Colonel's directive that he would have on the finished product to have Elvis's voice floating way above everything else under the idea of the little girls are paying to hear Elvis. They don't want to hear your guitar solo. Now I know. The, the production on both of these is entirely alienated. It's almost a postmodern song in that sense, in that it's screaming so much about passion and Elvis is working so hard, and yet it completely fails to get over, in my opinion. Yeah, um, Elvis's personal life at this point was unusual. He had gone into the army for about a year at the point that this song was released. Yep. So um, he was living in Germany um, with his new wife, Priscilla, with a lot of his entourage and hangers-on, who I think neither of us as Elvis fans have very positive things to say about. No, no. And in being there, these were the tracks that the Colonel would have released the world over 
In a lot of ways, it would be the offcuts from other sessions that were being released while he was unable to record new material because mm. who knew that Elvis was going to go on, continue being the icon. Surely he'd have peaked in 1958. That was the end of him. It's difficult to explain this now, but rock and roll music was just thought of as being like a brief fad. A lot of the Colonel's idea behind moving Elvis into movies was because movie stars could be stars for years, but nobody knew if it was possible to be a rock and roll star for any length of time at all. Like many a pop star today, Elvis hit 21 and Logan's run style. It was like, well, that's starting to beep in my hand. Surely I will be, uh, my career will be dead in no time at all. Which is why him going into the military at all was such a big deal. Um, Even though, of course, he was closeted and well looked after like any rich boy would have been at the time. Um, And he got a lot of very special favours from the top brass because he was doing such a, in the eyes of the mainstream press of America, a patriotic thing and showing all the young boys it's not good to be rebellious like those earlier records kind of whispered about behind the uh, public image. But, you know, go and do your service. Go off to Korea. You know, it's um, going to be fine. So he was very, as much as you get these pictures of him in uniforms, near tanks and things like that, he he wasn't in the army in the way that his comrades was in the army. Um, I think nowadays we do understand that there is such a thing as an old rock star and um, people who were very big um, 20 years ago can still have like massive chart-topping careers now. So the ageism isn't quite the same. It does remind me of a lot of what um, some of my friends who are BTS army are going through emotionally right now. In South Korea, there is still the draft. Young men become enormous pop stars. They can actually put their draft on hold. BTS, um, a lot of their songs are about the way that Korean youth are mistreated, with the draft being a particular point of contention between the generations, as you can imagine. Yeah. Have agreed to go into the army, even though they were actually given permission to avoid it due to their massive success. It's the only way they can show solidarity with the youth of Korea, who they've come to represent. The grief. I imagine Elvis's teenage fans must have been feeling was the same. You've got to imagine a lot of the young women buying this record were just happy to hear his voice and know he was okay. For BTS and for Elvis, I think that being kept very carefully in the lines of what the establishment would want the youth to be is a good business decision as well. The idea with Elvis is that, as John Lennon said, Elvis died when he came back from the army. And this opinion has fallen out of fashion. It's only really boomer rock critics who believe this anymore. But when you listen to this double A side, you start to think, maybe the death actually happened before. Maybe that's the reason this image stuck around. When Heartbreak Hotel plays to this day, after a thousand listens throughout my entire life, I pay attention. My ears perk up. Lonely, baby. Well, I'm so lonely. 
When I hear I got stung, I'm watching the clock. I'm waiting for it to run out. His very best album comes for me in 1968 with From Elvis in Memphis, just after the uh, comeback special. That's him at his most soulful, most control. It feels like he's got his muse there. And this one here just feels like someone who's sleepwalking through songs don't seem to mean particularly much to him. Yeah, and... It's it's worth comparing it as well to the other rock and rollers who are not in the top five in this rundown. Jerry Lee Lewis puts down a perfectly competent slab of um, rock, which was the only one of the list to actually get me dancing. Now let's go! Really, ultimately with Jerry Lee Lewis, his powers to make me dance just come down to the fact that literally nobody alive could ever play a piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. It's certainly not a record that is anywhere near as good as Great Balls of Fire. You came along and Woo! Now, honey, I've changed my mind. This world is fine. Great balls of fire. Little Richard shows up on the charts as well, is singing Babyface. doesn't do any of the stuff that you want Little Richard to do. <laughs> like, if you're putting on Little Richard, you want him to be hitting all those crazy high notes and screaming and singing about gay sex. And all he do, he sings it in this low, gravelly voice. It's almost like he's trying to make himself straight. Oh, God. Right, yeah. Nice and interesting point. Um, yeah, neither of them get across to me at all. Little Richard sounds more like James Brown on it. There's a settling down of a almost retreat to the suburban here. There's the fact that we're not going to try and rock as hard as we did. We're not as interested in doing that. It's as if in progressing, they've gotten softer. Um, and if you're a rock and roller, then that's not a direction that the audience wants you to go in. Yeah, it really does feel like the day the music died wasn't so much a horrible event that cut the rock and roll era short, which I think it is sometimes remembered as, but as an event that was symbolic of a change in the aesthetic era anyway. Um, rock music isn't shocking anymore. The charts are full of people who are being promoted as rock and rollers who are making very anodyne music. People like Billy Fury, who shows up towards the bottom of the top 30. Yeah. And Cliff Richard, of course, who was promoted as the British Elvis, but was very far from that. This uh, it rock and roll had become so commodified 
that it was everywhere and it had lost this radical potential, it lost its youthfulness. It had come to an end of its own volition and this is some genuinely great men just trying to find a little bit of um, spare oxygen before the decade closes. Yeah, and for all of those ones that we've mentioned, they would never return to the heights that swept them to their imperial phase. Um, they would continue to have wonderful records still be recorded and released, and you'd follow along really pleased to see Jerry Lee would go in a country direction. Now she's gone, and I'm to blame too late. I finally see what's made Milwaukee famous. Has made a loser out of me. They'd be more gospel coming from Little Richard. God is real, but I can feel him in my heart. They're both these magnetic, gigantic personalities. Um, fascinating to watch. And of course, Little Richard is on the side of good and Jerry Lee is very much on the side of evil. Fascinating, demonic evil. So far, the most evil person we are going to cover on this show. Um, and there's another very evil person who I'm going to talk about in the charts here as well, who I think is actually less evil. So the second Shirley Bassey song that we have on the top five, which is at, at number five. is called Kiss Me, Honey, Honey, Kiss Me, which I believe is also all of the lyrics. Kiss me, honey, honey, kiss me. Thrill me, honey, honey, thrill me. Don't care even if I blow my top, but honey, honey, uh-huh. don't stop. Lyrics are actually a little bit more um, complex than that, actually. In fact, I was surprised by how racy these lyrics were <laughs> before, before the 1950s. Thrill me, don't care even if I blow my top, but honey, honey, don't stop. I'd like to play a little game with you, a little game especially made for two. We've never played this little game before. If you relax and you'll enjoy it more. Like, she is not singing about kissing. No, that's true. Even if she blows her top. Yeah. No, it's, there's a sexiness to this. There's a sensualness to this. Yeah. That um, hasn't been there for the platters. The platters were danceable, but there was no sense of a seduction there. And we maybe spoke down Shirley's voice when talking about As I Love You, in that it was kind of a blunt instrument, or at least maybe I gave that impression. But it's got a wonderful playfulness on this record here. We've never played this little game before. If you relax, then you'll enjoy it more. She's also sexier than Elvis, which is which takes some doing. Elvis was just such a naturally sexy human being that everything he did just kind of dripped with sexuality. But phoned in Elvis is less sexy than Shirley Bassey trying to be sexy. Yeah. She's perky and bubbly and cute here. And like just cute enough that your parents won't get spooked by what you're listening to, but you know what it's about. <laughs> Definitely. And your parents might even be dancing to it in 1959 because it still does harken back to the sounds of the 40s. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, in the 1950s, there was this interest in a kind of tropical culture, I think. And the arrangement here is, I don't really know how to describe it. It's kind of a soft calypso sort of thing. A British pop writer's idea of the exotic. Yeah, I think calypso's um, a good encapsulation of what they're going for. I think mento was still quite big at the time. And it still somehow avoids being pastiche, despite being played by, I'm sure, the whitest orchestra in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I thought it was a, a good tune. I, it was my favourite of the two Shirley Bassey ones on the chart this time. I agree. I don't really have a lot else to say about it, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Shirley Bassey, and congratulations on all of your continued success. That's the top five. I warned you a couple of days ago that I was going to ask you this question. And I'm going to ask you, was there anything on the whole of the um, 1959 Top 30 that you thought, what do you think would be most likely to be a hit if you released it today? And you don't have to just do the Top 5, you can do anything on there. Okay. I have an answer for the Top 5, and that's Lonnie Doyden. I think that... Lonnie has such a quintessential Britishness about him. I think if a young man in an oversized baseball cap who perhaps looked a little bit like a youthful Jamie T was to come out with this same record, sounded exactly the same, I think you could trouble the charts in 2023. That's my completely uneducated uh, guess there. Um, and I'm willing to try it with any youths who want to throw their hat into the ring. Other than that, I thought that you'd have to go for the prestige side of things, that there would be something just completely off the wall, perhaps used in a phone advert or something. And I thought that maybe Petite Fleur could get in. <laughs> way because I think that's a really beautiful record I really didn't see myself liking something like that um, but it's got a wonderful atmosphere and I think yeah if it had been used in the right advertising campaign with the right backing behind it I think we should see that in 2023 yeah that that is a fun record actually um, my answer is unfortunately a bit darker um, which is I think um, the teddy bears to know him is to love him is the one that sounded the most modern to me on this chart. To Know Him Is To Love Him is the first hit by um, Phil Spector, who is the other evil person who we're going to be talking about this episode. Um, now, Phil Spector wrote the song based on the inscription on his father's grave. And he turned it into a teenage love yeah. song. But his direction to the lead singer was for her to sing it like she was singing to her father. She failed to reach the high note 
that the song goes up to when it goes into the middle eight. And he threatened to kill her if she didn't do it, which is a very classic Phil Spector move. Typical Phil, yeah. Phil Spector is pure, pure evil. And yet, Phil Spector really has, um, his sound has actually hung around on the charts in a way that a lot of the other textures in the 1950s just haven't. We're not interested in these... um, plucky little country instruments like um, plaves and slap basses and things like that. All of that's gone, you know. But when you listen to To Know Him Is To Love Him, there's just a level of thickness to the arrangement, a blurredness to the way the instruments all run together, which is something that you hear all the time on retro pop records now. The wall of sound is the thing that people look to when they're trying to reference the past. I don't know if it was with uh, Mark Ronson who ran with this sound very heavily, but uh, certainly the Amy Winehouse cover of this song scratches at a lot of what you're describing, that same timelessness. I think the wall of sound is a Wagnerian representation of Spectre's uh, just crazed, world-beating soul. You know, the fact that he had designs that were just so sinister, you can hear in the fact that it insists upon itself. He becomes a producer, perhaps one of the first producers of which, you know, people are aware. Um, There's George Martin, there's Brian Wilson of around the same time. But producer kind of just begins with Phil Spector and that's because of his insistence on being part of the record in a way that previous people would have just got out of the way. So my thesis on this is that the very awful qualities that made Phil Spector an evil man who would um, go on to hold the Ramones at gunpoint because they weren't able to nail a base take sufficiently to his liking and obviously would go on to actually murder. He bought a coffin for Ronnie Spector and would repeatedly show it to her in order to warn her where she would end up if she ever tried to leave him. A terrible human being. So, yeah, I think that Spector's creativity comes from the same place as the badness, and that's a bit of an uncomfortable truth. I think sometimes we have to live with as people. Yeah. Um, you hear it on this particular chart, And it's the only thing here that actually sounds like the future. And that makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can agree. It is indeed the only thing that sounds like what's coming. And we've spoken about the Beatles. They're bound to be uh, a large feature of any discussion of late 50s, early 60s music. They, of course, covered this early on. That's another way that it warped the direction of the upcoming uh, decade. And 
So, uh, what is your pick from the rest of the charts that you think is a notable song? Any other interesting things here? I don't know if I like the record, but the pub with no beer was a bit of a surprise. Oh, it's a lonesome away from your kindred and all By the campfire at night, we'll hear the wild dingoes call But there's nothing so lonesome, morbid or drear Than to stand in the bar of a pub with no beer Um, It's kind of a proto-crotodile Dundee, (laughs) which was new to me. And I knew the song previously. Um, I know it from the Dubliners recorded on their 1967 album The Drop of the Hard Stuff, which is a record that's mostly about drinking. It's a lonesome away from your kindred at all By the campfire at night where the wild dingoes call But there's nothing so lonesome, so dull or so drear Than to stand in the bar of a pub with no beer Um, And then through that, it became an Irish standard of sorts. Every uh, fool with a banjo and a shillelagh who was able to get a gig on St. Patrick's Night um, is going to have this in their set next to Galway Girl by Steve Earle and uh, a Monday track. This is just part of it. Now it's there with Whiskey in the Jar. So to hear it in its origin, it's not a song that I'd ever found interesting enough to track backwards. I assumed it had been written by an Irishman perhaps one of the less inspired Dubliners. So, yeah, this was an interesting find. It's um, it's one that's had, I think, a bit of an unexpected legacy. Yeah. I'm going to save one of mine until the end. But the other one I really liked was Problems by the Everly Brothers. Yes, which um, you compared to Bowie. Problems, problems, problems One of the reasons I like this one is because it was one of the few songs on the charts this time that was organically funny. It wasn't trying to do a vaudeville routine in the same way that Lonnie Donegan was. It's just funny in that it's describing the life of a teenager in a way that's almost Beastie Boys-ish. <laughs> My baby don't like anything I do Teacher seems to feel the same way too. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's uh, timelessly teenage. And the Everly Brothers are such wonderful vocalists. They've got those gorgeous harmonies. And uh, yes. Phil Everly in particular is just forgotten as a guitar player. Um, he would be a huge influence on someone like Keith Richards and through him, punk and heavy metal as well. There's a concentration on the chords there and the rawness that's just tied to a dexterity that I adore. I really like the Everly Brothers. Um, <laughs> lots of recordings of brilliant American folk music, but as rock and rollers, I think they're unjustly forgotten. I think they should be spoken about in the same way that we think of Eddie Cochran, really do. I've got to share that there was a time when I was uh, just coming out of school and it was raining and I had a cassette of my favourite songs at the time and the girl that I was in love with, oh so deeply, oh so forever, she was on the back of the bus with her boyfriend and the Everly Brothers crying and the rain came on and I did and I'll never ever be so Morrissey again in my life. I'll never let you see the way my broken heart is hurting me 
That's just what the Everly Brothers are capable of doing to a person. <laughs> it's like the best of teenage pop music, which the teenage heartbreak, teenage stupidity, and that is timeless. If you've ever been a teenager, you will be able to relate to it. All the way, absolutely. So, yeah, that's great. I also really, really like Steadily by Lloyd Price. Um, that would go on to influence uh, The Clash. It's kind of the beginning of their version of the reggae hit Ron and Boyo. They join these two mythical figures together. Incredibly violent. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to leave my knife in your back. Um, it's brilliant, and it's an old blues song that's been given this kind of jump band feel. It harkens back to the Buddy Woody of the late 40s and the stuff on the Chitlin circuit, which is where a lot of black musicians had to learn their trade because they couldn't play anywhere else, Chitlin being the inedible part of a chicken that they then would make a soup out of yeah. um, and sell there at the same time where you hear just the most fantastic acoustic and electro blues. Um, and steadily comes from that milieu. It's a song that probably dates back to the 1880s, and it tells a story of playing cards, a disagreement, and someone being shot. racial element under there as well about being given someone demanding their hat being given back by a black man that's all within this and what Lloyd Price has the genius to do is to continue to have that tension and threat within his vocal while making probably the most danceable track that's on this entire top 30 yeah that's fair I think uh, Nick Cave would go and make a, a travesty of this song as well because he can prove that he knows how to swear whilst doing a steadily ass on murder ballads yeah I think I know it from that version I, I remember filching that CD from my dad's collection and my dad being mad with me because he didn't think the CD was very good <laughs> <laughs> so was there any others that caught your attention anything else on this top 30 Buddy Holly it doesn't matter anymore. Do you remember, baby, last September How you held me tight each and every night Well, whoops-a-daisy, how you drove me crazy But I guess it doesn't matter anymore As we've said, this chart happened a few weeks after the day the music died The plane crash which claimed the life of Buddy Holly um, Buddy Holly was a rock and roller who was notable for having kind of a, I guess it was sort of like an all shucks persona. He was a, he was a big old nerd. He had great big glasses. He was socially awkward. And the ways he used his voice on records is he would, he would sort of gulp and, and sing kind of out of tune, but also not. And there was this sort of, this idea of like the, um, the cartoon 1950s nerd. Yeah, there's uh, some of this would follow down into David Byrne as well, but mm. he was also a strapping six-foot Texan um, who could rot as hard as anyone, if not harder, when he was of a mood to. Yes. Um, he's got some of the greatest rock and roll songs ever, and what's remarkable about Buddy Holly is how much was done by him in such a short time. 
I think he was something ridiculous, like 22 years old when that plane crash happened, which, you know, sends the 27 club into the moribund uh, filing system that they should indeed be in, because that is an incredible legacy for 22. And we should already hear him begin to progress away from that raw, rotting, danceable sound to something that's more cultivated and yet just as piercing that just has that same pulse and energy and vitality that Elvis and Little Richard and Jerry Lee were beginning to lose. The main sound um, that's sort of noticeable about the production of It Doesn't Matter Anymore is this very springy pizzicato string um, thing which just screams to you like the version of the mid-century that you see on cartoons. It's very 50s um, and it's it's almost like sitcom 50s, you know, which I'm sure Buddy Holly was doing with some degree of irony, seeing as his nerdiness was so much part of his persona. Yeah. Um, but the lyrics, I mean, it's a great song anyway. It was written by Paul Anker. It was covered by many people, including Linda Ronstadt. It's a bit of a standard. But Hearing it in the context of this chart, I mean, I was stuck there listening to this thinking so much of this is just gone now. It doesn't it doesn't appear in modern pop music. And this is this as his posthumous record. It's an unbelievable posthumous single. It really sounds both that it's about his death, which you can imagine kids would have been weeping yeah um listening to this at the time well you go your way and i'll go mine now and forever till the end of time i'll find at the same time it also sounds like it made me feel like it was the 1950s themselves saying goodbye to me <laughs> it's like all of this 1950s music has been reinterpreted, reimagined, covered, repeated. Its influences have gone on to influence other influences and those have gone on to have other influences again until almost all of this has been lost. And forgotten, exactly. Somehow, through that, completely unconsciously, just in the direction that he was heading naturally and organically, Buddy Holly did a Lazarus on us. He sent us the defining final record that, wow. yeah, it, in some ways the 50s died on that day. It's all here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually getting quite tearful talking about it. Bowie Bowie was able to kill his, his own self with uh, the perfect send-off album and the perfect send-off record. Buddy Holly killed an entire musical movement and he did it in a way that leaves you smiling. That's, I mean, I, I actually did cry at this when I heard it. It's masterful. It's a complete work. It's absolutely gorgeous. And somehow, despite the uh, Jerry of Tom and Jerry fame tiptoeing Pizzicata and the strings, it still rots. It's still rock and roll to me. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's, the, it's the way that rock and roll would have gone if the British invasion hadn't come along to turn it into a completely different genre. What we've got here is a left turn, a potential way that music way it might have gone down. It's a little bit like The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. There's an entirely alternate universe that could be mapped out. And if you can imagine Buddy Holly battling it out with the Beatles in the American charts, that's a very different future to what we're looking at now. 
I think he would have likely uh, gone out of pop music had he lived. I think he would have probably gone into production or something like that. But I think we had 60 to 100 more classic songs that would have come from this man. This is the work of someone who's just getting into their stride. Yeah, uh, someone with an actual vision. Yeah. Um, someone who isn't like Jerry Lee Lewis, someone who would just like sing whatever song so long as it allowed him to play his piano, you know? Yeah. There, there's nothing masturbatory about this in that way. Um, it's someone who is thinking about music as a as a complete whole art with the production, the performance, the persona. It still hurts. It's just a mark of an incredible creativity. And I think he would have been very pleased to learn that his work, you know, any artist would have been. But I think that he'd have been very pleased to learn that the immediacy has somehow never left his work. Um, that's, I think, his legacy. I think that's just something you can carve into stone. I remember a while ago I was on the bus and I saw some a little 12 or 13-year-old with a bag um, from HMV and he was showing it to his mother. And it was a it was a Buddy Holly album. <laughs> he was excitedly talking to his mother about all these songs that he'd heard and how much he loved them and how much they mattered to him. It's just a, a thirteen year old, you know. Yeah. And that because kids can just discover all of culture now, there's no reason why this can't be exactly as immediate as um, Ray. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, if someone wants to, it can be played on a phone as they walk down the road. Um, a type of music consumption that would never have crossed these guys' minds um, at the time. I think you were maybe just beginning to get records that could just about fit in the car at this stage, but that's a different experience to a 13-year-old boy in 2023, <laughs> you know, born in 2010, um, having this connection with this guy who died um, three quarters of a century ago. Yeah. So, yeah, Buddy Hollyman check it. Buddy Holly has got to be my pick of the week. Yeah, you can't argue with it. You've, you've won me over. If it had to be in the top five alone, um, which I've been using as a rule for the previous two episodes, I would personally be picking the platters. Um, the Lonnie Donegan record is more significant and it's more fun, but something about the just the the sheer quality and the beauty of that vocal performance for um smoke gets in your eyes just gets me every time i think the context and the bad story as well uh, we spoke in the past about how that adds to music i think that that certainly puts another dimension another twist on this song as well smoke gets in your eyes yeah so that was the end of our first retro one um it's been a really fun time to dive into this stuff and to explore sounds i just never expected i would um yeah no a fantastic time and we'll be doing more of these and we really look forward to your joining us on this journey the last thing I wanted to say is that um, in the same way that um, the Platters had their careers ruined by um, racist law, right now there is a trial going on with Young Thug um, who has been arrested under RICO charges, which are um, incredibly unjust laws that are designed to um, allow police to prosecute gangs. But the way they work is they allow police to prosecute um, anyone who is in a gang for the same crime as committed by anyone in that gang. 
as well as um, opening the definition of a gang to include virtually anything. And this has been disproportionately used to target um, black musicians. There is a petition that you can sign free YSL. It's really important that you do try and support this movement because rap lyrics are being used in court in order to put young black men in prison. Some of the signals that are being used um, under RICO to determine that um, young black men are part of gangs include things like their branding for their music enterprises. Um, YSL was a record label and their record label branding was seen as being gang signs. Um, Young Thug is one of the most influential rappers of the current wave. So um, it really is um, incredibly sad to see something that was happening in the 1950s happening again today. And um, I would, I'm going to link in the podcast description to the petition so you can read more about this. And if you can sign on any petition that gets against something like this recurring, I think that'd be a really nice way to spend time, really useful contribution. God. Uh, I knew there was something I forgot. Okay. What the fuck was going on with there being three different versions of the little drummer boy on the charts this week? Seriously, what is this? So we have the Beverly sisters doing the little drummer boy at number 11 on the charts. We have Harry Simeon doing the little drummer boy at number 14 on the charts. And just when you think it's all over, you get Little Drummer Boy by Michael Flanders on the charts. Come, they told me, and that's why David Bowie must have re-recorded it, because he was having it hammered into his head repeatedly by every single version of this song on the charts. They told me, because here is the thing, every single version of the song is bad. All of the versions are bad. It's a bad song. What was going on? Why were you listening to Christmas songs at the end of February? What was going on with you? 1959! I know Buddy Holly was dead, but there's no excuse for this! What was happening? There you go, baby. Here am I, well you left me here so I could sit and cry, well whoops a daisy how you drove me crazy, well I guess it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs>